You know, I, uh, this may be a shock to most of you, but I had aspirations of being a basketball player when I was a young man. Uh, my dad's six foot three. All my relatives on his side are six foot plus. Even, even my cousins are taller than me on that side. The, the, my girl cousins, which when I was a young man, I thought that can't be. Girls are supposed to be shorter. And uh, obviously, I didn't know anything. But um, I had dreams. I thought I was going to grow to be at least six foot something because normally you're taller than your dad, right? Uh, it's worked out that way for all of my boys, um, but not for me. And um, I, I don't know if you guys have ever had a dream that you were pursuing that, that your parents didn't think was a very good idea. And my mom being gracious, she's 4'10", and, and uh, she was trying to encourage me that short was okay. And um, I had uh, my basketball hoop, what I got to train on. We lived on a farm. No asphalt, no concrete, so it was a gravel driveway, and we had this old uh, axle drum or a brake drum off of a tractor that we welded a big chunk of pipe on and put a hoop up on the top of this axle drum. There was no backboard. Um, we couldn't afford a backboard, so just, just a hoop setting out in the middle of this driveway, and I would spend hours out there shooting the ball at that basketball hoop. Um, as you can tell, uh, my career in the NBA was uh, very short. Thank you. Yes. And uh, I, I, I still love basketball. I still, you know, try to play it when I feel like hurting. And uh, But as a young child, I, I saw those things, and, and I thought, man, I, for whatever reason, I saw the, the giants in the NBA, and I thought, I can get there, I can get there, I can get there. And that whole thing, starting out small and, and being small, I, I don't know if we're very good at accepting that, right? Because um, for me, I was a failure. For a lot of years as a teenager, I was a failure because I never grew. Um, I hit seventh grade, and um, I hadn't quite broke 100 pounds yet. Uh, I, was still, um, I was still well below the 5'5 five five mark. Um, I, I, was, I was tiny, itty-bitty tiny. Um, in fact, when I turned 16 years old and I got my driver's license, one of the most humiliating things ever in my life that's ever happened, I drove through Burgerville in my 1965 Corvair that I had worked off, got running, did it all myself, I my driver's license, and I drive up, and the girl behind the, in the drive-thru window demands to see my driver's license. She's convinced that I can't be old enough to drive my car. I was horrible. When we come to Christianity, when we come to following Jesus in the kingdom of God, we're actually going to wrap up that process today in Mark chapter 4. We're going to wrap up at least Mark's account of Jesus telling us about the, the kingdom. But isn't it amazing that in his kingdom, the, the, the weak are the great? The servants are, are those who are elevated in God's kingdom. He, he likes to use the weak and foolish to do his things. The Savior has to die. Uh, in most of our world, wouldn't we say that that's kind of backwards, right? In fact, Jesus' disciples really struggled with it. They're like, you're supposed to, you're the king. Uh, you're going the wrong direction. Um, and as we saw in, in earlier in Mark, even his brothers mocked him a little bit and said, well, if this is what you're supposed to do, go to Jerusalem, take it over. Let's see it happen. And so when we come to this passage and we start talking about this kingdom and we talk about a mustard seed, I just want to encourage all of us to consider that though the kingdom of God is at times different than what we might think it should be or what we'd like it to be maybe, um, 
God's kingdom. And he's the one that set it up. He's the one that spoke it into place. And he's the one that we, as his children, have the privilege of serving and residing in relationship with for eternity. What a privilege we have to serve the king. So, uh, although we're going to start out small, I think as we read in the text, we're going to end pretty well. Um, would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 and just follow along with me in verses 30 through 34 this morning? I'm going to confess something to you right up front. I'm a little bit... I'm. I'm I'm torn today because one of the things I'm struggling with is I want to tell you all the cool stories that happened at summer camp. Um, and then I want to share with you cool stories that happened at VBS, but we'll, we'll have time for that later. So if you see me distracted, part of it's because there's thoughts hitting me and I'm like, oh, wait, but I can't do that yet. So we'll get to there. We have a whole year to talk about these things, and I'm sure sermons will have opportunity for them. But this morning, we're in Mark chapter 4, verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is grown, or when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now, there's some discussion about, uh, I don't know how many of you guys have a mustard plant at home that can hold bird's nests, um, but there's some discussion that there's different seeds and there was a different, uh, there's, I guess there's a black mustard uh, tree or seed or something. So what it was, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I've, I've shared with you my abilities to garden, right? Um, you guys know that I'm not a great gardener. I nearly made the mistake of, of dissing flowers uh, just a few sermons ago, so I'm going to be very careful here. But what we know about the text, what we, seem to, what we see God doing, what Jesus doing as he's describing this, is he's trying to help his disciples understand how the kingdom of God works, right? We started out with the parable of the soils uh, two months ago. What, it's been a while back. We started out with that, and then we go through this process of hiding a candle, hiding a light under a bush. Are we going to light a candle and, and then cover it up? Then we looked at this idea of this growth process, how growth actually happens, that the seed is planted, the farmer waits for it. They don't know how it happens, but there's growth that comes out and it produces fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. Those were the three parables that were, or Mark's using as we lead up to this point. And here, Mark tells us that Jesus says that he's comparing this kingdom to a mother mustard seed, small, and then becomes the largest in the garden. Well, one of the things that I thought as I was looking at this is, well, where else does Jesus talk about mustard seeds? Because there's got to be some parallel to this process, right? Yes. It's a logical thought. So we check and see. Let's, let's look and see what, what we have. I'm going to share with you two verses, and, and we're going to talk about those for just a moment. Because um, we, I think we need to wrestle a little bit. Why does he use the mustard seed? Is it just its size? And, and it, that may be the reason that he uses the mustard seed. But in the context of the other two passages, it's kind of interesting. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. And we're just, there's just a couple of verses here we're going to look at. 
I don't typically just pull one verse out, so I'm going to explain to you what's going on so that we understand the context of what is said in verse 20 of Matthew 17. The, the disciples bring to Jesus a young man, as his father's actually brought him. He's a, a, possessed by a demon, and they tried to cast him out, and it didn't work. So they bring the boy and the man to Jesus, and Jesus rebukes uh, his disciples in this process, and then he casts out the demons. And in that, pro, in that point, um, the disciples looked at Jesus, and they were like, when they were alone privately again, and they're having this discussion, Jesus is instructing, they're like, why couldn't we do it? We're, we're doing the same thing that you're doing, but why, why couldn't we do it? And this is where we pick up Matthew 17, verse 20. And he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Similar passage, very similar to it, is in Luke 17, verses 5 through 6. In this passage, we have a little bit more, it's a, it's a more condensed moment, but we see the disciples or the apostles approach Jesus and make a request of him. In Luke chapter 17, verse 5, he said, the, the, the text says this, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So they're getting it, right? The disciples, the apostles, they're figuring this out. We need more faith. Jesus, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What are the contexts of those two passages? Was he instructing his disciples on how to do gardening and earth moving? He wasn't, was he? And yet so often our focus on those is, man, if we have enough faith, we can move mountains. Right? How many of you have thought that way at some point in your time? If I had the faith of a mustard seed, I could say to this problem, depart from me, and it would go away. So many times we do that, and yet what Jesus seems to be pointing out to them is that they don't even have the faith of a mustard seed because that, that small amount of faith would move a mountain, and his disciples can't do that. His disciples lack the faith to do simple, simple things. And, and Jesus is, is basically looking at them and saying, the smallest seed on earth is the amount of faith that it would take to move this mountain, and you can't do this. How much faith do you think they had? It appears that Jesus is saying, not much. Not much at all. So I thought to myself, well, why would he use that then to describe the kingdom? Do you think that this caught the disciples' attention when he mentioned mustard seed again? If your parents use an illustration for you, like, your brother always does this so much better than you. Oh, oh sorry, that's bad parenting. Um, a better a better way to do that would be like, the Bible says, right? Okay, I'm just being honest. But when they use an illustration and they continue to use an illustration, when they pull it up again, does it ever stand out to you? It should. If it doesn't, we need to pray for you. That's the point of repeating illustrations, right? It's to grab our attention. It's to grab our hearts. It's to make us go, oh, yeah, man, he's been really challenging us on, on that small amount of faith, this little, this little bit. And here in the text... Mark says that 
the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that's planted, that, that although it's the smallest seed on earth, when it's sown, it grows up to become very, very large. I think one of the parts that I've been wrestling with is in this idea of our faith being small and of the kingdom of God starting out with something so insignificant and then resulting in something quite spectacular, which we'll, we'll look at here in just a minute. The emphasis really takes us back to being focused on who God is, right? I mean, that's what it should do. That's, that's because when the disciples see Jesus heal people and do all of these things, they, they should be in awe and in worship of him because of his clear, the, the clear power that he carried from God and demonstrated in, in his relationship with his father. They should be in awe of those things and in awe of God. And when, when Mark says that Jesus is explaining them to the kingdom and they say that the kingdom starts out like a mustard seed, it starts out so small and so insignificant, but in the process of God's work and his design, it grows into something spectacular beyond its capacity, beyond its original uh, uh, scope, and it does more than what it could have done, what it could have ever imagined doing. At no point do I think of a plant, would I think of something that small, and logically in my own head, something itty, itty, tiny, bitty, growing up to be something that could actually provide shelter for something else. My whole dream, my whole idea of being of playing basketball, there was significance, there was value for me in that. And when I when I realized that I wasn't going to get to do that, I went through a pretty tough time as a teenager thinking that God had failed me. Why would he give me that passion to play basketball if if I <laughs> five eight was my best? I, I just I want to share this with you guys. I actually could get my wrist over a 10-foot rim. I worked very, very hard. I could, I could fly back then. That's a pride moment. I'm just, can't do that now. Man, I tried so hard to be a basketball player because all of my identity was wrapped up in that. So it got a long time to get me to be okay preaching. With taking the position of a servant over that of pride and prestige. When you think of the kingdom of God and you think of where you're starting from, you think of your condition, it's no surprise that a God who says the greatest in his kingdom will be the least here on earth that the greatest of his people will be the servants of all. That he chooses to use the weak and foolish things of the earth to confound the wise and put in place the strong. It's no surprise that his kingdom would start with the smallest of things. What's the outcome? We see in the text, Mark says, that the outcome of this, when it is sown and it grows and it becomes large, it becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts on large branches so that the birds of the air can nest in its shade. The outcome is that the growth process that happens when we're sown into the ground, and remember the sowing process, what's the, what's the being sown process? The seed is put into the ground and it dies. 
God causes the growth, and out of that growth comes fruit. When the seed is sown into the ground and it, it grows back to be a large plant, it provides shelter for others. I was thinking to myself, if this kingdom, God, what are you, what are you referencing in this text? What is it that, that we're supposed to see um, in this? In fact, it's, it's kind of an interesting study if you go through and look at birds, because oftentimes in, in the, the, the Bible, birds don't have real good connotation. Um, they can they can actually have very negative um, uh, connotations behind them. Although we do see Jesus providing for the sparrows, and and when he tells us not to worry about it, that you know even even the birds of the air have a have a nest during the winter, that he takes care of those like he does us. But what kept coming back to my mind is how does a kingdom that starts with the most insignificant of things provide become such large uh, a, a place of provision, and it took me back to Genesis chapter 12, to a promise that was made to Abraham as the Jews at that time, as his disciples would be very, very familiar with. It's in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The text says this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Who was Israel in the scope of nations when God called them out? They were nobody. God makes the promise through Abram, through his, through his line, that they will be a blessing to the whole earth. That all the nations will be blessed because of them. In Acts chapter 3, verse 11, we won't turn there, but if you want to mark it in your Bibles, it's, in, it's a great read. It's part of Peter's sermon. Um, I believe it's his second sermon, and he, he's reminding the Jews at that time, he starts off by reminding them that they crucified Jesus, which, you know, that wins a lot of popularity contest, uh, contests in, in that day, I'm sure. Um, but then he goes back and he begins to remind them of the promise that came through Abraham, that Jesus Christ fulfills this promise. And it, is, it is him and his salvation and the good news, the gospel that he is preaching that is the fulfillment of that promise. So here's a kingdom that starts out super insignificant, super small. The smallest of the seeds on the earth is what the text says in verse 31. And yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes this large provision that becomes a nesting place and, and a spot for the birds to find rest in its shade. kingdom that starts out very insignificant. How many of you guys would sign up for that kingdom? Not many of us, right? How, how many of you guys are looking at the, uh, any, what, what are your sports fans? Anybody good sports fans in here? How many of you guys are rooting for the worst team? Yeah, I didn't see any hands go up. Some of y'all know you have them. I mean, I was a Seahawk fan for a long time. I've been there when they didn't, when they weren't good. I stuck by their side. I was a Blazer fan back when they called them the Jailblazers. 
We were horrible. I stuck by their side. How, we don't root for the win, losing team, do we? We don't root for the insignificant teams typically. We don't, we don't line up and say, hey, I want to work with the, with, I want to be part of the, the least significant, the least prominent. Yet in God's sovereignty, his kingdom starts out small. Do you think that was an encouragement to those disciples? It had to be. I mean, we're going to look at a, pa- a couple more passages because Mark, unfortunately, he left us with verse 33 and 34. It would have been awesome if it would have ended right there. But he gave us verse 33 and 34, and that's kind of messed up my week. So it's kind of like two different sermons this week, I think. Um, but that had to be encouraging to those disciples to know that his kingdom is going to start out small and it's going to end big. I, I know they didn't get it. I know that they were struggling to get it. But but there had to be some hope that Jesus was giving to them in, in just explaining all of these things and, and taking the time to walk them through that. I hope it gives you hope. I don't know if you guys ever feel this way, that, that this whole Christian thing is just kind of going down a creek without a paddle type of deal. I don't know if you guys ever feel that way when you look at the culture and you think about all the things that are going on around us and in in the politics and world government and all of those things. There are times where it can be very discouraging to determine in your heart to stand for what this book teaches because it is not popular. We even know in the Word of God that it says that there will be a day where churches won't tolerate this. So to choose to follow the kingdom, to choose to live in obedience to the kingdom of God has its perils. It has its risks. And the disciples experienced all of those. And yet when it has grown, it becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches. The kingdom of God is growing. The kingdom of God is being tended by a heavenly father who knows what he's doing. That is encouraging to me. Clearly, we don't have all the parables. Because verse 33 says, With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. I love that part. As they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. One of the things that grabbed me as I was studying this was that he spoke the word to them. When you and I think about the word, what do we think of? We, we go right to the text, don't we? We do. And, and the challenge is that they, didn't, they, they had the Old Testament, and I, we know Jesus taught out of that regularly. And he, he explained to them how he fulfilled the prophets and, and, and the, the writings of Moses and, and all of those things from the Old Testament that pointed to him. He, we know that he explained those things. But there's other aspects of the word that I just wanted to take a second for us to think about. When we think about the word, it is more than, it's bigger than just this. It is all of this, but it, it's not just us reading a book. There's, there's more to it than that. Uh, look in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Now, uh, verse 4. 
We have Saul coming on the scene. He's destroying, he's ravaging the churches the way that the text actually describes it. So the, the church is being scattered, that whole, that whole pro, growing from insignificance to prominence. I'm sure the disciples were struggling with their faith in that, going, how is this working out? Jesus is gone, and now the church is being persecuted, and, and it probably didn't feel like things were happening how they would want it to happen. But it says this in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were sharing, they were testifying to the Word of God. What were they teaching? What were they testifying to? It's the Word, but it was what they heard from Jesus, right? It was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the good news coming. They were teaching and preaching Christ, because we'll see in just a second that He is the Word. Turn to James chapter 1, verse 21. We have this challenge in the text, and again, I would encourage you to read more of it. Um, I just don't have time to read all the passages. But James chapter 1, verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The implanted word. What does it mean to be implanted? It means that it's put into, right? We, we're reading about planting. We're reading about things being sown in. This word is not just, it's not just physical text on a page, but it's words that can be implanted into lives. And James includes in that, which is able to save your soul. There's something about this word of God that he's teaching his disciples, that he's testifying to, that when persecution came, it was scattered, and they began to teach and testify to, that when implanted into the lives of his believers, it actually can save your soul. So when the text says that Jesus spoke the word to them, I want to encourage you to take a minute and wrestle with the broadness of that statement. He wasn't just reading him good Jewish stories. He, he wasn't just reading a text and then putting the Bible down. He was teaching them how this word, how the, the, the good news of the gospel was going to change their lives. And again, in verse, uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we see the, the every, most everybody knows this, but it's an important piece. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not, not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Part of the reason that I wanted to take just a second and look at the Word is because when we think about the kingdom, when we think about the significance of our insignificance in the kingdom, it should elevate who God is. Because the, the whole faith, the point of faith, isn't what we're able to do with the faith. It's who our faith is in. Because that's where all the power comes from anyway. I don't know how many of you believe you can play basketball. I believed it, you guys. I committed hours and hours and hours of my life to that pursuit. And I, I was not very good. 
but I put a lot of time into it because I believed that if I put in the effort and I made all the, uh, did all the pieces that someday some team would need a short guy. But it's who our faith is in that is so important. And it's knowing Jesus. It's seeing Jesus for who he is. It's understanding that he is the word, that the word is implanted, that we've been called to preach it, that the word changes the lives of people that have it, that are affect, that are, uh, are in its presence, that study it, that memorize it, that live by it. It's deeply important for us to recognize that. It is incredibly important for us to see the value of the Word of God as part of His kingdom. Jesus seemed to think it was pretty important because He continued to explain to His disciples over and over again. The phrase, as they were able, um, I, I just I really appreciated that because it, it points to the, the humanness of of the guys to their, uh, just the challenges that they had in following Jesus. Look at John chapter 16. John chapter 16, 12 through 15. Verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Do you see Jesus' heart, his desire to share more with his guys, but they can't handle it? That should put a smile on your face, because Jesus chose them. Right? He handpicked that crew. Now, if you were out handpicking a crew to change the world, would you go and get guys that couldn't understand the teaching that you're going to give them? Not in our best day. Right? We would pick the A team. You would not pick a five foot eight guy to be on your basketball team. You just wouldn't do it. And yet, here's that's the crew that Jesus chose. And he says, I want to say more to you, but I can't because you can't handle it. Now, beauty is Jesus knew that the Spirit was coming and that there would be changes and there would be growth in their life. So let's look at how that worked. Paul is talking to a group of believers in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Say, wow, why, why are you sharing that with us? Partly because when I begin to read these texts and I see phrases where the disciples are struggling to understand what Jesus is telling them, 
it encourages me in two ways. One is that Jesus doesn't give up on his kids. He continues to teach. He continues to provide opportunity. He continues to walk with them. And in his sovereignty, through the power of the Spirit, these goofballs, these, these disciples that were struggling to do all this stuff, they changed their known world. Small to pretty big. And even when persecution came to try and drive them out and to snuff out Christianity, it exploded. That encourages me. Because it reminds me that as Jesus has worked with them, he's going to continue to work with me. And I can continue to pour my heart into his word and desire to follow him. And in his faithfulness and his sovereignty, he leads me through those opportunities. Maybe there's a time where I'm needing to be polished up. I don't know how many of you guys, how many, anybody do car stuff in here where you're polishing things? Did you guys know that that's just, it's just sanding, it's just done with finer stuff, right? So it's, it's, it's like taking a grinder to your fancy stuff, but you just do it with really, really fine material. But it's the same process. You're still cutting away and, and roughing up the edges. I look in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Writer of Hebrews is is challenging um, the those who are he is writing this text to, and it's um, it it could be a real challenge for us. About this, he says in verse eleven, uh, Hebrews five eleven. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God or the Word. Of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Do you see what the what the author is challenging uh, the readers of that text to do? Did, did you catch it? It's the same thing Jesus did with his disciples. He continued to take them back to practice. He continued to take them back to the word. He was regularly teaching the word. And then when he got done doing the parables, he would actually go and meet with his disciples and say, okay, boys, so this is what I'm saying. And then, okay, this is what I'm saying. You know what it reminds me of? Fourth graders. Cannot tell you how many times we said the same thing over and over and over all week long. One of the cool things we should teach you this, uh, Mr. J challenged us to be in the Word, to actually put God's Word into our heads so that it trickles down to our heart, so it comes out our... Not a bad thing to learn, right? Could we do that? We read God's Word to put it into our... So it trickles down to our, okay, I got to tell you, Mr. J would be really disappointed in you guys. We take God's word and we put it into our, so it goes to our, so it comes out our mouth, right? So does that mean we memorize scripture so that we can just repeat scripture? No. 
It means we put, we wrestle with the word of God. We practice with the word of God so that it transforms our thinking. It transforms our heart and it becomes who we are. It's how we live. It's what we do and what we say. And we all know, we all know that when things happen unexpectedly, you smash your finger, get cut off on the freeway or something doesn't go the way you want it. The first things out of your mouth you normally want to filter for, right? We all know that because we've been raised in church. But what's God doing? Where's that filter start? It starts in the Word of God. That's the reason that I believe it's so important for us to get a hold of the importance of what this is and who it is that wrote it and who it is that has called us into His kingdom. This was a struggle for His disciples. It was a struggle for the church. When Paul was preaching, it was a struggle for the church. When Hebrews was written, it was a struggle for the church today. Brothers and sisters, the challenge for you and for me, I think at times, is having a right view of the kingdom of God, of understanding its significance from a right perspective. God did not call you and me into his kingdom because we were so wonderful. I am sorry if that is a surprise to you. God called us into his kingdom because he is so wonderful. God gave us his spirit and he has given us his love because he is so loving, because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Our salvation comes from him and is empowered by him and it is grown by him. That's the kingdom that we serve. That's the kingdom that we have the privilege of being called children and heirs to the throne in. I want to encourage you today that if your view of God or your view of being part of a child of God is coming to church on Sunday and hanging out with some cool Christian people, because we are, I think you're selling yourself very, very short. Jesus is not just a bottle in a, a genie in a bottle that we scratch when we have something that we need help with. God does not, he, he's not just the cosmic killjoy that's, that's up there waiting for us to make a mistake. All those cliches that we've heard in church that for whatever reason, we may or may not really talk about them, but we kind of live like it sometimes. And there's more available, there's more designed by God for us to experience, to know, and to engage in, in this kingdom of God that he has called us to. And by Jesus' own example, he teaches them from here. Now, if that's true, this is a pop quiz, it's what we ask the kids. If... This is really where we would grow in our knowledge, understanding, relationship with God. Is that don't don't answer yet? You guys are almost got in trouble. If that were true, would this not be logically? I'm not. I mean, I get it. There's other things to think about. Would this not be the highest priority in our life? Is it? That's the dagger I've been wrestling with this week. Is it? That's true. 
But is this the most, is this the highest priority in your life? Does it have time in your day? Do you rearrange your life to make time for being with the Lord, to practice being in His Word? That's the challenge that I, that I ran, that I found myself running in. I got to tell you, day three of EBS, getting up with my knees hurting. Having to be here at 8.15 in the morning, which I know for some of you is not very late, but I was up late that night too. Man, Lord, I've got a lot of stuff going on. I know what we're teaching today. We're just reading Psalm 27. I've read it three times. I, I really don't need to be in here. I've got other things I need to do. I've got important things. I have responsibilities to be ready for the kids when they show up. Anybody feel any sympathy for me? The problem is that it's so easy for us to exchange the value of this word for our daily lives, for the busyness of our daily lives. George Barna says it this way. He goes, how inconvenient that God interrupted our already, in, uh, in, uh, our already overscheduled uh, day and requested time with us. But, oh, isn't that a great one? And I think I butchered it. I may have to get it. Don't, don't blame George Barner for that. He said something like that. But it really pierced my heart. How, how much of our day is do we have set aside to be in his word? How much of our time? And I, I'm not, you guys, we can make this a religious thing and go all legalistic on it. And you can turn in notes and we can, I mean, we can do all kinds of stuff. But the issue is, is our heart pursuing the king? Is our heart pursuing the king? If my heart was bent towards Jesus, if I understood, if I had a right view of him, if I have a right view of him, then being in his word, being in prayer, being in relationship with him would be the highest priority in my life. Because everything else, everything else fades. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love for your patience, for your kindness. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you that you are truth, that you are love, that God in your sovereignty, you designed a kingdom that we would never have chosen on our own. We would not do it this way. But the reason, I believe, is because when we see the kingdom, when we see you for who you are, you get all the glory. And the pride that exists in our hearts that so rampantly runs our days begins to be diminished because of who you are. So God, as we think this week about what our schedules hold, what our time frames are, what, even what we think about the kingdom of God, how you do what you do, Father, I pray that you would put a burden on our hearts to be in your word, to be talking to you, to be communicating and listening for your direction in our lives. God, I ask that you would take all the glory for all the, all the new faith that, that was uh, testified to in VBS and in, in junior high and high school camp. And I'm sure that that's happened across the nation this summer. God, I just pray that you would draw these new believers to yourself, that you would found give them a foundation rooted in your word and in who you are. And I pray for those of us that have that have been in the church for many, many years, that you would light a fire in our hearts, 
that you would ignite in us a passion for you and for your word, that God, it would, be, it would become the most important thing that we do in the day. Not the last thing. Not the exchanged thing. But the thing of greatest value. We thank you and we praise you and we give you all the glory in your name.